Welcome to the podcast, everyone. I'm Chad Norman, your host for this nonprofit technology podcast. I want to kick off this episode with a high-level look at internet fundraising and some of the statistics that are making it so attractive these days. To do so, I'm off to see Allison. Joining me now is Allison Van Deest, Product Marketing Manager for Internet Solutions here at BlackBot. Welcome to the podcast, Allison. Hi, thanks very much. Today I wanted to discuss how nonprofits are raising money online, specifically how effective it is. You always have great data and statistics, so <laughs> let's start there. How widespread is internet fundraising? According to the most recent data that we have, the internet is extremely widespread. In fact, 91% of Americans have used email. That's 182 million people. And of those, 22 million have actually given a gift online. So that's 11% of Americans have started to donate online. So clearly we're all online. I mean, uh, I think uh, we, you know, we know that from day-to-day life. We're reading and writing blogs, finding friends on social sites, buying billions of dollars worth of merchandise. But how much are we actually giving? Is online fundraising becoming the norm? Well, I wouldn't say it's the norm yet, but it is an ever more important part of the overall fundraising mix. And it's a very lucrative way for organizations to raise funds because it is relatively inexpensive to ask for money online. And the average size of an online gift is larger than the average offline gift. In fact, recent studies have shown that the average offline gift is about $33, whereas the average online gift is $57. So when we're you know, talking about a more personalized experience online and the relationship can be cultivated in a different way, when we're looking at that relationship, can that lead to larger gifts? Actually, it can. Um, we call the phenomenon of having a personalized relationship with someone online that mirrors the relationship that you have with them offline, true CRM. So this is the idea that there's not kind of an invisible curtain between all the things that someone might do with your organization offline, like volunteer or come to an event, and all the ways that they interact with you online, like look for information or um, set up a, a personal web page or give a gift. You don't want to have a barrier between those two. You want to share all that information, all that relationship data that you have with someone to drive the way you speak with them online and offline. So when you use true CRM as, as a philosophy in your marketing, we found incredibly high returns. In fact, the average online gift for BlackBot customers who are employing true CRM is $149, so almost three times the average online gift in general. That's just an amazing gain, and I think that partially has to do with that fact that it's online, and the relationship can really be personalized and cultivated in a different fashion. Well, while it's still hard to call the Internet new, it is to some. How can the development office convince board members and executives that the Internet is critical to successful fundraising? Certainly, we would hope that they would share that information about the larger size of gift that you can expect online. But there are lots of other ways that you can measure the amount of money and effort that you put into building up your website and allowing people to interact with you and and conduct transactions online. A few of them are... um, Heightened event registrations, heightened membership registrations, larger gifts, of course, volunteer registrations. But then there are other sorts of measurements that you can do just to show that more and more people are coming to you to learn more about you, and maybe that's translating into support elsewhere. So how many people come to your site, how long they stay on certain pages, how often they click through to take various paths through your site. What if most of your constituents are older? Is online fundraising as effective? Well, I'm so glad you asked that because we talk to organizations all the time who have an older constituent base and who worry that those people aren't necessarily comfortable with the Internet. And actually, the 
Internet and American Life Project last year reported that Internet users in the 65-plus age group is the fastest-growing group in America. So 67% of Americans are using the Internet on a regular basis, according to that study, and 50, ages 50 to 64 is growing tremendously, but 65-plus is growing the fastest. That's more than 32% um, these days in the 65-plus demographic that are on the Internet regularly. So that changes the mix greatly. So this must bode well for nonprofits that are you're looking towards this intergenerational transfer of wealth that's right around the corner, correct? Well, absolutely. You know, a lot of folks think about the Internet as being the place where you give a gift, but it's so much more than that, and they really need to think about all the ways that the Internet helps you communicate so that you can achieve all sorts of support from people. So don't stop with thinking someone has to pull out a credit card and, and make a 25 or 50 or $100 gift right there. Think about the fact that you may have older people coming to your site to learn more about you. Make sure that you have resources there for them about, say, planned giving. You know, it, it can be a very sensitive private subject to people to talk about leaving a legacy gift. And it, what a wonderful sort of anonymous way for them at first to come, take a look around, understand about you and your mission, and really read some detailed legal information about what's involved with a legacy gift. I, I think it's a great platform to start sharing those types of ideas with, with your supporters. Well, that's just some amazing statistics and some amazing information. So I appreciate you joining me today, Allison, and thanks for being on the podcast. It was absolutely my pleasure. Switching gears now, I want to get right into the second half of the BlackBot Enterprise CRM design conversation between Rich Conti and Casey White, two of BlackBot's amazing software designers. The conversation is already in progress, so if you missed the first half, be sure to check out episode three of the podcast. Not just trying to you know, do the best we can within a particular channel or within a particular context. Right. Something that we, we've talked a lot about is when we do present that information. What, what's the best mode of presenting? You, you touched on this a little bit earlier, but what's the best what's the best format in which to present it? And is it it always that editable format, uh, kind of the the razor's edge, always editable format? Obviously, there's some huge advantages in, in that editable format in terms of the efficiency of being able to to get right in and edit and m- make your changes. Uh, there are also drawbacks in terms of making the information as readable as possible, combining it with with graphics or other kind of supplemental uh, information, and and basically just formatting the data in a way that that accomplishes the task of of reading and understanding it, which may be very different from 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 how you want that test formatted in order to edit it. So you, you, we, we do have areas right now where we have these separate view and edit formats and trying to maximize those. But then we also need to balance th- those different formats with the efficiency uh, and being able to get right in and make those edits. So that, that's something that we've worked, worked a lot with and, and had a lot of discussions around. And that, that relates overall to the, the general navigation of the system. I think when you, when you find interfaces that are more geared around this edit mode, more geared around data capture, there tends to be a overall navigation paradigm that's more focused on hunting. It's very record-centric. It's, it's I'm going to hunt for a record. And, and that assumes that the user has something already in their mind that has made a particular record relevant to them. Mm-hmm. And, and all the system is there to help them retrieve that archived information and perhaps update it. And we're, and we're thinking about a richer navigation paradigms where what makes or the piece of information that may be relevant isn't always something that the user has as a preconceived uh, notion in their mind. So we want to help the user discover what's relevant based on you know what the purpose of the system is, what may be important to a particular organization or 
particular role within an organization. Uh, a good example might be looking at uh, the the interactions that my fundraisers have with my uh, major gift prospects or my prospects in the major gift pipeline and think about what are the metrics there um, that would spur me to look down at a greater level of detail. And so rather than thinking of an application that just provides me a bunch of uh, tools to jump down uh, to detail that I determine is relevant, you know, let's think about an application that can ta- start with some summary level information that may point to me or reveal to me some some relevant information at the next layer down. And let me use that as the basis of my navigation to drill to that next layer. So not, you know, forcing a user to either A, to determine what's relevant and go find it, or B, forcing a lot of detail at them in terms of big lists of information. Let's think about how we can wrap and summarize some of that information in ways that are meaningful to different roles and let them use that as the basis of their navigation to determine when it's relevant for them to go to that next layer of detail. Mm-hmm. And you know, if we think about it in those terms, it becomes very recursive because that next layer itself may, may, may reveal something to me that warrants going down to, to, to the layer below. And presumably at some point we, we maybe end up with a particular record, but but the, the way the user has gotten there has been, because it has been not because they had some preconceived notion that this record was important to me. It's because information about that record has bubbled up and has raised a red flag, or raised a yellow flag uh, that's made it you know important for me to drill down through those layers to find out what's meaningful. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is one of the areas that, that the Infinity platform really shines, is the ability to provide more customized uh, views and, and, and features based on the user, based on a particular task. We do pretty intensive field research, find out what are the best practices out there, what are the needs across lots of different organizations, what are the things that we should put in there out of the box. But there are just certain things that are going to be very specific to a given organization or, or to a given user. And and it's it's comforting to know that we have that capability, that flexibility within the Infinity system that an administrator could go in, put in special tasks, special views, um, a certain graph or a certain table, whatever it is for a given user that, that really keys in on their, their particular needs. And that becomes, you know, especially critical when we think about, you know, large, what we call enterprise scale uh, nonprofit organizations. You know, the classic uh, Catch-22 or conundrum uh, for them is you know, for an organization to have you know reached that that scale and that size and that complexity it is most likely because there's something uniquely compelling about their mission and unfortunately for these organizations as they grow and as they try to scale those things that make them unique aren't things that lend themselves to be managed effectively by off the shelf software so on the one hand, the organization is trying to, trying to really strengthen and leverage what they've, do, they've been doing that made them unique and special and successful. At the same time, they're battling their need to scale and to use industry standard systems that you know maybe aren't suited to those specific needs. And I think that's where um, the Infinity platform provides a lot of value in being able to, out of the box, give them all of that knowledge about certain pr- practices and processes that, that we at Blackboard over our years and working with nonprofits have, you know, determined our good and effective fundraising practices, while at the same time not forcing them to compromise on those things that make them unique, to allow them to define and, and, and work with us to build out features and tasks and analysis that are really specific to their, you know, 
key operational needs or their key mission-related you know features and and provide those in a way that that don't feel like a, a customization or a bolt-on that are built using the same tools that we build our out-of-the-box features with and 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 a first-class part of a of a true enterprise a CRM system right and we've been provided with some some really cool raw materials in terms of the smart fields calculated fields that can be put into the system and displayed at, at various places uh, key performance indicators where an organization can identify those particular uh, calculations or, or, or values that are really important in determining how successful they are in their fundraising efforts and things like smart queries where uh, where, where the administrators can uh, create optimized queries and only expose certain parameters to their users that are important to their users for certain tasks. And we have some great raw materials here that, that we can uh, then mix and match and put together in, in really optimal ways um, or, or the administrators can uh, and just and use the system to customize for particular users uh, and for particular situations just to make sure that we're, we're taking advantage of all of these uh, key aspects of the, of the platform. At that, that's a great point. I mean, we're at a very... Interesting part, uh, interesting point in our project, our uh, product life cycle in that we've, we've obviously put a lot of work in. Um, we have, as you said, some, some, some great raw materials, some great building blocks, some great tools, you know, that are very, you know, robust, very capable that we think are going to, you know, provide a lot of value. We're just getting our feet wet now with the first couple of clients mm-hmm. and really thinking about how we can put those building blocks, uh, you know, really into practice or where we've tried to assemble them in a way that we think is, you know, provides value and is meaningful to certain uh, types of organizations, really, you know, putting that to the test in practice and right. getting it out in the field and finding out where, you know, some of these tools need to be refined or enhanced or broadened or, you know, whatever shape it may, whatever shape they may take, really think about, you know, how do these things hold up in practice? So it's a pr- pretty interesting time. Yeah. Those guys blow me away. Remind me to have them back on the cast. Let's move on with our Getting to Know You segment featuring Melanie Malonis and Ken Meifert. Since 1939, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum in Cooperstown, New York, has been preserving the history of America's favorite pastime and connecting generations through exhibits, events, and educational programs. The museum features more than 35,000 artifacts in its collection, including Jackie Robinson's jersey, Yogi Berra's catcher's mitt, and Babe Ruth's home run record-breaking bat, along with more than 2.6 million items in the library collection. Today I'm joined by Ken Meifert, the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum's Director of Membership and Sales. Thanks for chatting with me today, Ken. Glad to be here, Melanie. Ken, please describe your organization's mission for us. I know it's a very broad mission, and uh, you have a lot of different programs there. Can you give us an overview? Sure. We boil it down pretty simply. Uh, We preserve the rich history of our national pastime. We honor and inspire excellence, and we connect generations through baseball. And what is something that most people might not know about the Hall of Fame, Ken? I'd like to talk about two things. First, a lot of people assume that we are connected to Major League Baseball. And while MLB does offer us support, we are an independent, not-for-profit organization. And we really rely on the support of our members to carry out our mission. One other item that often surprises people is our robust education program. We have a staff of teachers here in Cooperstown who host visits by more than 7,000 school kids each year and instruct those children in topics ranging from geography to economics through baseball and baseball history. In addition to those who visit the museum, thousands more participate in live video conferencing from their classrooms all over the country, and we host an electronic field trip with Ball State that reaches 10 million school kids each year. Oh, wow, that's great, Ken. How long have you been doing the the e-learning? 
really it's increasing every year. The electronic field trip with Ball State we've been doing for a number of years now, but as classrooms get hooked up to the Internet, we're doing more and more of that video conferencing over the Internet. And I know one of the things that the kids uh, get really excited about is your baseball card collection. Can you tell us a little bit about that? We have an incredibly large collection of cards here in Cooperstown, and the exact number is blanking on me, right? right? More than 130,000 in our collection. And one of the rarest ones that you'll sometimes see in the news, I saw something recently, is a T206 uh, Honus Wagner card. Uh, And one of those recently sold at auction uh, for over a million dollars. Wow. And you have a file on every player also, correct? Uh, That's correct. We have a a file on anybody who's ever played in the major leagues. uh, And that file contains news clippings, contract information, stats, and and normally there's photos on folks too, although we don't have photos on everybody who's played in the major leagues. And Ken, tell us a little bit about what you do at the Hall of Fame. Sure. My role at the Hall is to oversee the membership program, and that includes everything from the operations side to marketing and promotions and donor cultivation, kind of handing them off to our development office. Ultimately, it's about generating revenue through the membership dues to support our mission. And you've built quite a successful membership program, growing from fewer than 10,000 to more than 23,000 in just over two years. How did you achieve this, and did you ever imagine that you would more than double your membership in such a short period? Well, a couple of years ago, we, we reevaluated the program and our marketing uh, efforts, and we made a few pretty dramatic changes. First off, we added a 10% discount for members on purchases from our museum store, and that benefit was a huge success, very well received. Second, we increased the frequency of our magazine from four issues to six issues a year, and our members continue to tell us that that's one of their favorite benefits. That's also one of the key benefits in us creating a national program where members don't necessarily have to come to the museum to enjoy their membership. We launched a multi-year renewal program, which is important to us for a couple of reasons. First, it offered our members a way to avoid annual renewal notices and to save a few dollars since we offered discounted pricing with a two-, three-, or five-year renewal. Second, it allowed us to really concentrate our efforts and our resources on signing up new members rather than going through that annual renewal process with all of our active. We developed a number of of new direct mail packages, and we've continued to improve them, carefully tracking and analyzing those results with all the features built into Razor's Edge. And once we had a solid direct mail package in place, we began to rent outside lists, and that's been very, very successful for us. An exciting thing on on the horizon, recently we worked with the Blackboard Analytics team to build a statistical model of our direct mail responders. And then we rented a large list and basically run this statistical model against that list, and the model predicts which people are most likely to respond. What that allows us to do is mail the top 20% of that list, increasing the overall response rates and cutting our mailing costs. Right now, we, as I mentioned, we recently mailed this, uh, this list that the analytics model separated out for us, but the initial results are very, very encouraging, so we're very excited about the potential of that, and I think that's going to keep the growth going for, for some time to come. And probably most important to all of these factors that I've talked about is the Hall of Fame as an organization made a commitment to growing the membership program. And from our president, Dale Petrosky, you know, right on down to the folks who are selling tickets at our admission windows, everybody in the organization is committed to growing the program, and that is by far the single most important factor in our recent growth. And while you've managed to grow your membership base, you've also had very impressive retainment of current members, right around 40%, right? 
Yeah, we're seeing first-year renewal rates in the low 40% range, up from about 35% a few years ago. We attribute that to a couple of factors. We feel that the magazine, Memories and Dreams, that I mentioned before, is a big part of the improvement, along with a more aggressive renewal strategy that includes earlier renewal mailings, some back-end premiums, and even discounts to keep people on board. Our overall renewal rate for the program as a whole, this is first year and, and everybody else combined, is about 70%. And what we find is that once we can renew somebody for that second year, they become extremely loyal to us, renewing at rates over 90%. That's great, Ken. And I know this is a real busy time of year for you. You'll be presenting on your membership program at the American Association of Museums show this weekend and hosting the sold-out Hall of Fame game on the 21st. And then just around the corner of the Hall of Fame induction weekend. How do you keep it all together with so many events and membership activities constantly taking place? Well, I think for me it's a, it's a matter of planning and having outstanding staff. Everyone here at the Hall of Fame is really passionate and loves the work that they do. And I think that when you combine that passion for the job, you know, an extremely talented staff and careful planning, it, it all comes together. And what else is on the horizon for the Hall of Fame? Well, as you mentioned, we're preparing for what may be our largest attended induction ceremony to date, with the potential to have more than 50,000 fans here in Cooperstown on July 29th to witness the induction ceremony honoring Cal Ripken Jr. and Tony Gwynn. So we're really excited about that. And Ken, if people would like to learn more or plan a trip to the Hall of Fame, where can they go for more information? The first step should be the Hall of Fame website, and that's baseballhalloffame.org. You can also reach us at 888-HALL-OF-FAME or via email at membership at baseballhalloffame.org. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today, and I wish you continued success. Excellent. Well, thanks very much. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Well, that does it for this episode of the podcast. I'd like to thank my guests Allison Van Deest, Rich Conti, Kaysen White, Melanie Malonis, and Ken Meifert. We'll be back in a couple weeks with a fresh episode. Until then, I'm Chad Norman, and thanks for listening to the podcast.